Hey everyone and welcome to Serious Business number five. I'm Patrick Gray. Uh, and this is the podcast I do about non-infosec related topics. It's less of a professional information security digest and more of an excuse for me to blab with co-host uh, Dan Illick, comedian Dan Illick, about serious stuff every few weeks. And uh, on this edition of the show, we're talking to Dan about a bunch of stuff. Uh, Kanye West has apparently announced he's running for president in 2020. What a relief. Maybe, uh, you know, it's the dawn of a new era. We'll talk about that. Uh, we talk also about uh, Donald Trump because... You know, wow, just wow. Uh, then we move on to the depressing stuff, the European refugee crisis. Are the handful of Flashpoint images and stories actually going to get people motivated about fixing the wider problem, or will they just result in a few Kickstarters to directly help the affected individuals uh, who are sort of coming through in these, uh, I, I guess you'd almost call them memes, uh, hence absolving donors of their first world guilt. We'll have a bob each way on that one. We also talk about the vaccination-free childcare centre springing up in my hood. Uh, geez, what could go wrong there? And finally, we look at the way streaming services are reshaping the media landscape, in particular, uh, the types of shows that are being commissioned. Could Netflix and similar services spell the end of high-quality TV news and current affairs? That's coming up soon. Uh, but first, Dan, I've got to get your reaction on Kanye West announcing that, of course, he is running for president in 2020. I mean, this is this is just great news, isn't it? I mean, you're a comedian. You know, you've got to be doing the high fives. Well, I think uh, I think it is fantastic. It's good news for democracy, uh, and it's even better news for music. Getting Kanye <laughs> West out of music. <laughs> oh, that's a lie. That's a lie. You know, Kanye West is a fantastic producer. Uh, have you ever been to one of his live shows, Pat? Uh, I did. I saw him play. I saw the first couple of songs of him playing at um, Splendour in the Grass when they had Splendour in Queensland. I think you might have been there yeah. as well, right? Oh, I and, was I was at that gig. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, I remember the next day talking. I stayed for two songs. The whole thing was so weird. He's come out of a hole in the floor and there's sparks and fireworks and it was and the dancers. And then um, Will, Will Anderson was floating about and he said, did you see that Kanye gig yesterday? It reminded me of a 1980s Rocker Stedford. <laughs> and it was funny because it that actually was, that did. Was, that was, that's a pretty accurate description. And I just remember being... Being so bitterly disappointed in whatever Kanye West did on stage, I, I spent a lot of time at that festival more than I should have watching Kanye West. Uh, <laughs> I, I think the, I think it was about an hour worth of performance, and I just walked away going, I don't know what that was. I don't know what I just I saw. Wasn't, I wasn't <laughs> enjoying it. I'm just standing here because I know right now it's the coolest place in Australia to be standing. <laughs> yeah, did someone slip me some mushrooms? Like, is this is am I actually seeing this, or you know, should I make Maybe not rely on my current state of perception at the moment. Well, that's like, just what that is exactly what Kanye said when he got up at the VMAs and he he went on an eight minute diatribe about you know his career and his life and then of course announcing he was going to be a pre he wanted to run for presidency after eight minutes. If you're in that audience, it would have felt like it would have been twenty minutes. I reckon. I reckon it would have felt forever until he got off stage. He got up and he said, "Did I smoke something?" Yes, I rolled up a little something. So <laughs> it might have been a Jeffrey by the sounds of things. And you gotta love how at the end it was just almost like a by the way, I'm running for president. Do you know what I mean? Like blah 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 blah, random stuff, random stuff, and I'm running for president. But you know, the funny thing is, see if he had done this a year ago, right? It would have been hilarious. But now <laughs> we've got Donald Trump running for the White House. We've got Hulk Hogan. Hulk Hogan, who wants to be uh, Donald Trump's running mate. So what what would have previously been considered funny is like Kanye 2020 is now like, 
Uh-oh. <laughs> it it did kind of come out of nowhere for me, I'll have to admit, though, Pat. Um, you know, he, he got up and he said, yes, uh, as you've probably guessed right by now, that I'm going to run for president. <laughs> and actually, to be honest, Kanye, I wouldn't have guessed that. If you said I was retiring, I would have guessed that. If you said I'm going to start a religion, yes, I would. that would have been on my list. If you said I'm pregnant, I would have believed you. If you said I'm going to give this award to Taylor Swift, I get it. If you said I'm actually a long-form improvisational sketch comedy act by Tina Fey and Amy Poehler, I would have believed that. <laughs> but actually running for president, I, don't, I, I, I can't ever imagine those words coming out of uh, Kanye West's mouth. No, I'm going to become a shoe designer. I can imagine that coming out of his mouth. But yeah, no, you're right. This <laughs> yeah, was a, it was it was a, it was a bit of a turn, right? As you've probably guessed. Uh, I, I want to know who's going to be in his super pack. Who's running that super pack? Does he need to? Does he even need to have a super pack, or is he like Donald Trump? Donald. Well, the interesting thing about a great article came out about about Donald Trump uh, this week um, that puts his. His worth at only about two point three billion. Oh, is that all? <laughs> Trump came out and said at the beginning of this whole process that he was worth about ten billion dollars, and he didn't need to raise any money because he was a, a, a multi multi billionaire. Um, and there's this story about how Trump didn't actually make any of his wealth; that his wealth sort of, kind of inherited um, was inherited from his dad. He inherited about $40 million in 1974 from his dad. And if you invested all of that money in the stock exchange uh, over that 35-year uh, period, right now it would be worth about $2.3 million. Billion, um, I think uh, you mean. Two, two, yeah, yeah. $2.9 <laughs> sorry, $2.9 billion. That's a lot of money. But even so, Forbes and Bloomberg only put his... Uh, worth at $2.3 billion. So Trump says he's worth $10 billion. Uh, the money he inherited from his dad, if he invested it, just put it in the stock exchange and let it grow, that would have gotten out to be about $2.9 billion. But today Forbes and and, uh, and Bloomberg say, you're not even worth that. <laughs> He's only worth two point three billion. Now yeah. I'm not even worth I'm not even worth two point three bucks. But uh, <laughs> I, I just still think it's funny that the ar- the arrogance of the man to kind of uh, he is very much like Kanye in that respect, where um, you know the much much the same way rappers will just show everyone will uh, like talk up big how much money they have. He's ex- he's effectively a white rapper with a toupee. Look, from one slightly bizarrely depressing topic to a completely depressing topic. I mean, this refugee crisis in Europe, has suddenly catapulted into being the biggest story in the world right now. And it's odd to me in some ways because it's been going on for a while. Yeah, this story's been kind of brewing since about 2010. Uh, I saw a great Mother Jones article recently, Pat. I don't know if you caught it. It was a wonderful cartoon um, presented by Mother Jones to explain how the drought and climate change pushed farmers and people in rural Syria off their land and pushed them into the cities. And it was that conflict uh, and it was that kind of pressure on those cities that sparked civil conflicts. I, I have read a similar analysis, actually, and, and a lot of people say that Syria is actually the first climate war. Super interesting um, sort of thought there. And I, I think that kind of, uh, since this, this process has been going on for so long, for, for the last five years, and now it's really coming to a head um, as soon as those people end up on the borders of, of rich countries. It, it's kind of surprising. And, to, it, and it's kind of peaked, I think, peak sort of um, 
resentment has hit its peak with that picture of that poor child on the beach in 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 Greece um, who who died, and I think what is happening now is this crazy wave of compassion or I don't know. It's kind of it's not you know how we have confected outrage. I yeah. don't know whether it's too much whether it's too much to say that the media has turned into confected compassion. Look, I, and um, I just, you know, I just really do appreciate the way that you're expressing this because you're you're sort of uh, putting it in terms that I definitely agree with, but I probably couldn't have said it the way you just did. And and there's been two flashpoint sort of images for this. There's been that poor bloke. There was the buy pens thing. This poor guy lugging his toddler around uh, on the streets of uh, I think it was Beirut in Lebanon. You know, he's got his toddler flung over one shoulder and he's holding a bunch of pens in his hand. And it, it turned out that this guy was just a Syrian refugee who was selling pens on the streets of Beirut to make enough money just to buy food, you know, for him and his and his daughter. His wife had already gone back to Syria. They parted company. Um, so it was a very depressing image. And, of course, then this compassion machine swung into action and they ran a Kickstarter or something and raised $170,000 for the guy. And I think, look, that's great. I'm really glad that that guy's having a happy ending but there are millions of people suffering at the moment, like literally millions. We've had uh, something like a quarter of a million people killed in Syria. So sometimes I worry that people latch on to the image of a single dead child on a beach or they latch on to an image of a desperate father uh, trying to care for his child and it's their way of blinkering this awful experience and just focusing on, 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 on sort of one individual's experience. Does that make sense? It's almost like they want to blind themselves from the wider horror and the wider despair. I don't know, I don't know about that, but it, I feel like, you know, it's okay to have those single stories. And I think a personal story can sell an issue a lot more than a bunch of statistics. And I think we, this is kind of what, what we're seeing here. Um, so that poor bloke with his holding his cry, like feeling the stress of, of, of arriving in Greece, and then that that's a great story, you know, to kind of sell to kind of sell the broader picture, to kind of give context for the larger picture, and also this picture of the poor child dead on the shores in Greece that tells that same story. But this is kind of nothing new. I don't know. If, do you remember that incredible photo called Napalm Girl? Of course, I think, yeah, uh, from yeah. the Vietnam War. Um, that's an these these shocking photos um, bring travel really far and sell the story really far. And where it comes down to um, taking action, you kind of see people, particularly in 2015, throwing these images up and then chucking in a link to UNHCR or chucking a link to Medicines on Frontiers to donate. And I think that's pretty interesting. Where it's interesting from an Australian perspective is that to get these images that are related to um, the Australian um, problem that we've been facing the last few years? That's kind of it's almost uh, it's almost impenetrable to kind of get those images out or to mm. even report on those things. Journalists and media organisations are, are too scared to go there now and do that because of new laws that have just been passed to to muffle um, to muffle the voice of, of media who are trying to report on those issues. Look, and I think. Uh, you know, <clears throat> let's look at the local impact for a minute, and I think it really has shifted public sentiment. So you're, you're right. It does actually, these individual flashpoints, I mean, I, I guess I just get frustrated because it's like the, the horror of this wider situation is almost 
incomprehensible. And I think, yeah, maybe these these sorts of images do help to make people understand, make people think about it. So I do sense that there's been a slight shift in sentiment here in Australia beyond the lefty echo chamber. And our Prime Minister, Tony Abbott, has really failed to detect that. When asked to comment on this this image of this, of this uh, drowned boy, he said, well, that's why our policies are so great because they stop illegal boats. Now, I, I can't imagine anyone who's seen that image is thinking, oh, well, what they were doing was illegal. They could stay in Syria and be tortured and murdered, right? Or they could, mm. you know, whether or not it's illegal, which it probably isn't, or they could get on a boat and they can paddle to another country for their lives, okay? I don't think anyone who sees that image is really considering the legal aspects, and I think Abbott's comments are a spectacular own goal, politically speaking, mm. especially when it comes in the same week that the New York Times dedicated an entire op-ed to kicking the shit out of our policies on asylum seekers. Well, do you know what? I hate to say this, but I think Abbott might be smarter than you or I on this one. I think Tony Abbott will totally defend the position and Tony Abbott will will rag on the New York Times for saying what they said. But that's okay because if 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 anyone in Europe takes heed of the New York Times, maybe they'll accept refugees and maybe refugees will get the message that Europe is more friendly to refugees than Australia and refugees won't come to Australia. And to that, that is an Abbott win. You know, like that is, that is, that is, I, I, that's, I, that's the, that's the logic that he'll be playing with. I reckon. Look, I reckon that you're right, that that is the logic that he'll be playing with, but I think it just makes him come off as a colossal bastard. <laughs> no, it, it does. But, you know, I, of course it does. But here's the thing. I think people, I think general public probably really, I don't know. I, I don't know. I hate to say they probably like it, um, but you know, it's kind of it's kind of it is interesting to see how sentiment is changing. Like, mm. uh, I don't know if you've seen uh, if you read Vox Media, Vox dot com. They had a great article recently that kind of shows how Western hypocrisy has kind of changed on refugees over the last couple of years. And they they put up a picture of the Sun um, front page from a year ago and the Sun front page of today. And a year ago, it said. Um, Shock Sun Pole, uh, halt asylum tide now. And then today's sun is like, it's life and death in the picture of, mm. of those poor kids. It's like, it is, it is kind of funny how sentiment is changing and it's changing for the better. And I, I, you know what? When that sentiment does have such a dramatic shift, politics should follow. Uh, that's kind of how democracy should work. Shouldn't politics so, lead, my friend? I mean, honestly, that's, you know, I don't believe oh, don't, that, that our leaders oh, should be led by polling. Politi- I think they are led by sentiment. I think in some instances when it comes to social issues, you're absolutely right. But in other cases, you know, it would be nice to have some leaders take on some unpopular decisions and bring people along with them, convince them, elevate them. You know, wouldn't that be nice? I think the key phrase there, Pat, was... Shouldn't politics lead? Shouldn't? The word shouldn't. Yes, they should. Mm. <laughs> but uh, that's not the reality of what happens, though. You know, um, politi- politicians use the media to kind of get their, get their point across and uh, the media reflects what the, what the people think and, if, and, and also can inform how the people think as well. So as, as that is kind of changing, maybe politics will change their opinion to represent kind of what the populace is thinking because it's in their detriment, it's to their detriment that they don't. 
Um, but yes, no, you are correct. Um, pol- politicians should lead. <laughs> yeah, that would politics be. requires probably politics does require immense courage to do things that are um, that are morally correct. Now, meanwhile, there's been a couple of other interesting things happen with Abbott. Uh, first one is uh, Rupert Murdoch has been, you know, avidly tweeting his um, tweeting some love, showing Abbott some social <laughs> media love on the old Twitters, uh, which is kind of funny. Um, and, you know, he's saying he should call a snap election and stuff, which I think is a terrific idea because he'll almost certainly lose it. Um, <laughs> and then uh, Abbott also kind of scored another own goal when he he basically compared ISIS to Nazis uh, unfavourably, as in he was saying, hey, at least the Nazis had the shame to try to hide what they were doing. And, of course, the Jewish community or elements of the Jewish community were in uproar over this. But I don't know. I mean, I I kind of get where he was coming from. What do you think about this? Look, uh, I'm not Jewish. I didn't live through the Holocaust. Um, But initially when I saw the reporting of Abbott kind of comparing ISIS to the Nazis and how they were kind of boiling it down to the most simplistic thing, saying that, oh, Tony Abbott says ISIS are worse than the Nazis. I thought, well, that's that's kind of a bit crazy. Uh, and I instantly banged off a couple of funny tweets along those lines, you know, something along the lines of, oh, no, maybe, maybe Tony Abbott meant that ISIS had worse uniforms than the Nazis, <laughs> uh, which they do. Um, but well, they didn't I have Hugo Boss listen- on staff designing them, you know, it's, so it hey, is what are you it do? Is, it, it is a challenge that you don't have Hugo Boss uh, designing yeah. uniforms. What, who is who is the ISIS Hugo Boss? I think there's a, a market gap there. I've always said for years, <laughs> and, I, I always, and I maintain this, I tried to get up a sketch up, up on Hungry Beast about this, that the problem with the Afghanistan war and the Taliban was that the Taliban had very poor branding. And so people in the West couldn't, um, uh, couldn't articulate their hatred enough for the Taliban to show support for the Afghanistan war. And I thought what they need to do is have a logo and a uniform put upon them so that people can easily identify them and so that people in the West will go, oh, yes, the Taliban, they are evil. Maybe we should have airdropped uh, stormtrooper costumes all over the whole place so they could wear them, you know. That would be good. That would work. That's ex- Kill that all stormtroopers. That is a brilliant idea. To, first of all, to understand our enemy, we must they must be dressed sassily. <laughs> um, but one of the interesting things that happened long after that thought was um, the Get Coney campaign. Do you remember the Coney campaign? Oh, Coney twenty twelve, my friend. Yes, uh, before the its creator wound up streaking down the uh, street, yes, completely Jason buck naked, screaming at the top of his lungs. That's right. Jason Russell had a uh, had a brain snap and went naked. But what they did was they took a guy who no one knew about, and they basically gave him a logo and a brand for mm. people to hate. And I thought that was really smart. That was the smartest thing they ever did. Of course, they never caught him. Like, he's still out there. But And there are a bunch of crazy Christians who were just trying to make sure that um, uh, Uganda um, stayed a Christian country. So that was that was the, under, the underbelly yeah. of that. Um, well, and all of the money that people donated to them just went straight into production and paying their salaries as well. So they didn't do anything <laughs> except make snappy YouTube videos. Hey, at least they got a hit. That's right. But I think what Abbott was saying here, it was generally correct. I went back and listened to those comments and while he did kind of do a comparison between ISIS and the Nazis and he, and he was saying that ISIS uh, are very bold with their statements and are very open about the atrocities that they were performing, he, his his comments were very measured and I don't think they were clumsy at all and I think he was just kind of articulating uh, a thought about how ISIS uh, boldly go about exploring and, and use media to exploit their own achievements. And a, as someone who is on the internet all the time and can kind of see what is happening with ISIS, and they 
they do have extraordinary production values and those and people all around the West do share those images because they are really well produced yeah. and because they, they tell a horrific story. Um, and I think I don't know whether we've gone past that now and whether there's just been so much of it now that media organisations are, are decidedly choosing not to share uh, a lot of the worst stuff now, um, which I think is an interesting sort of change of tact. Question to ask. Yeah, yeah, a change of tact. Like, um, and while I should be reporting the news, maybe it is a good thing that that the med- that the media organisation is not giving so much oxygen to ISIS in this way. Well, I think maybe editors have woken up to the idea that they've they're being played. Oh, exactly. Yeah, that is totally true. And um, I I feel like these were sort of the questions that we were trying to ask ourselves when I worked at AJ Plus, um, which was a very kind of tough organisation to kind of tell these kinds of stories in. Um, And also um, you can still see these images being made weekly if you go to the right websites. Um, And uh, and so if you want to see them, you can go and find them. But... um, but there's definitely a downturn in in Western media actually using these images in their reporting yeah. of this of these incidents. Well, this, I think it's story. it's a recognition that it's a bottomless pit of propaganda. It's one that as long as they publish it, they'll keep producing it. And you know, I, I think you're right. Abbott was kind of on point. Like, I just don't think Nazi comparisons are ever good because of Godwin's law. You know, I mean, just you just don't <laughs> go there because you're always going to piss off someone. So I think it was a misstep in that regard. Um, but he's right. If you compare, well, you contrast the propaganda. You know, you know who. All- you know who also said you're always going to piss off someone, Pat Gray? Hitler said that. <laughs> well, clearly I'm a Nazi then, you know. But look, you, you, you're you know who else was a Nazi, Pat? You know who else was a Nazi? Hitler. Hitler was a Nazi, Pat. <laughs> Let's move on to something a little bit lighter. Well, kind of. Sure. I mean, this is kind of depressing as well. But this is a dark episode. I feel really sad after this. If you're listening <laughs> and you're and you're on a bit of a downer, we're really sorry, but it's pretty dark this week. It is. It's Kanye the world is, was good. The world Kanye is was shit good. edition of uh, serious business. Um, a group of mothers up around my neck of the woods, in fact, uh, the area in which I live has the lowest vaccination rates in Australia. A group of mothers. In response to um, no jab, no play rules here uh, here in Australia, they're, they're throwing together a vaccination-free childcare centre. Now, let me ask you this, Dan. What could possibly go wrong? Uh, nothing can go wrong because all those children are really healthy children naturally. And, and they're getting so their vitamin they... D and they eat a lot of broccoli. <laughs> That's right. And if you don't believe it, you can go to kale. I mean, hell. Yeah. Look, I think um I think one I think the, you know, there's only one solution to this, Pat. I think the best thing that would fix this problem is to find a kid with measles and enroll them in the school. That's the only way to fix this problem. <laughs> I don't think that's going to be a problem, dude. I mean, already what we've got up here is we get whooping cough outbreaks in this area, and it's simply right. because the kids aren't vac- vaccinated. And unfortunately, this has killed a few infants because the babies that are too young to receive that vaccine get infected by some other kid whose parents, who might be older, but whose parents didn't infect them. I mean, this is really life and death. And, you know, I, as I say, where I live, it is the centre of the anti-vax movement in Australia. And I've given up even talking to these people because there's plenty of them around here. It's like this group think weird. You know those villagers that used to see visions of the Virgin Mary? It's kind of like yeah. that. It's an unshakable delusion. It's an unshakable belief 
that the entire establishment is conspiring to jab your kid and give them autism. <laughs> in your community, can you choose to go to a cafe and sit in an unvaccinated area, like like non-smoking or smoking, <laughs> like non-vax or vaxing? I'm sure uh, it's let's coming. Let's sit in a, in a non-vaxing centre, in a non-vaxing table, please. But it is, it is just strange, isn't it? I mean, do you think the government should move against this? Because my personal belief is they should, because the last thing I want to see is dead kids because they're all the unvaccinated kiddies are getting together. Well, haven't they already started to move against this? Haven't isn't this part of their plan? Like the no jab, no play plan? That was probably the most sensible thing Tony Abbott's done in the last twelve months. Oh, that was the out. no jab, no pay plan, and that was about cancelling people's uh, Centrelink benefits and tax family tax breaks. I don't uh, think that that's through yet, right? But I right. mean, and the people that live in your area uh, don't take this the wrong way are probably a little bit well off, so they don't have to worry about their those well, tax benefits. Well, I've got a joke for you, Dan, and feel free to use this in a stand-up set. And I actually did gift it to another mate as a comedian, and I saw him deliver it, and it kills. Which is, why is it when I ask anyone for directions in Byron Bay, the answer always starts with, "Well, you know where Centrelink is." <laughs> <laughs> Good. Good. I'll, I'll definitely use that next time I'm doing a set in Byron Bay. Well, you can use it anywhere. Why is it every time I'm in Shepparton and I ask someone where you know, where something is, they say, well, well you, you know, know where Centrelink is. is. Uh, yeah. take, a, take a three lefts from there. About the only place that joke doesn't work is Sydney. <laughs> That's right. I've never been into a Centrelink. I, I, <laughs> this is my this is my, my existence as a middle-class, uh, wealthy white man is that I've never had to go into a Centrelink. That's my privilege. I'm just checking that now. Now, Dan, before we go, I just wanted to get your thoughts on this because you're an entertainer. You know, I myself have been a journalist for quite a long time. We have some mutual friends who who work for various media organisations, including the ABC, including yeah. print, including whatever, across drama and and journalism. And I was having a chat with a mutual friend of ours the other day um, just about who's commissioning shows. And, of course, Netflix is quite new in Australia, uh, but there are other services. Yep. There's Presto, there's Stan. Australia is quite late to the streaming party. But we've seen what's happened in the United States where they've captured, the streaming services have captured an awful lot of market share in terms of viewing hours. So they're really sort of dictating to a large degree in some markets what new content is being produced and what, what the direction of new content is. They're going to be major players yeah. in that. But of course, they're because they're a streaming service and they're time shifted content, they have zero interest in time-sensitive programming like uh, news shows, panel shows, current affairs shows. If we take this to an extension, a fairly logical ex- extension, do you think that Netflix could be bad for filmed journalism? It's a very good question. I don't know the answer to that. Um, but I think that um, I think they could be open to it, actually. I think, I think that's a, a really fertile experiment to ready to be had. Um, I think you're already seeing enormous experiments done by HBO. HBO uh, having their own Vice show on five nights a week. Vice is going from a digital platform to a TV kind of setup um, over this next 24 months. <clears throat> so you'll see a lot of Vice content, a lot more Vice content hit the net. I think when it comes to um, big major streaming platforms commissioning shows that are a little bit more topical I think we just haven't seen that yet and of course they want things this is the eternal um, bane of my existence as someone who works in this uh, in the specific realm of video and top and topical news is that trying to find someone to sponsor the kind of content you want to create is is difficult um, and you kind of need to be 
when you're making that kind of content, you need to be in all the social media platforms all at once. So you need to be where the eyeballs are. And I think the real winners of that have been BuzzFeed, Vice, AJ+, The Young Turks, and now this news. They've really, they're really, they're, those guys are running the experiments that people should be looking at um, and they should be treated as experiments um, because they're constantly changing the way they do things every month. And you can kind of see how they're doing things and, and the big media players are, are taking notice of that. I don't know what Stan might be commissioning. I know they're commissioning um, scripted drama and scripted comedy and they're doing some um, light entertainment comedy as well, um, like an improv show and things like that. Um, but it's hard to see, it's hard to know where they will go in terms of news kind of content and topical content. In my mm. mind, I think it's I think it's a perfect place for it. I think... Um, uh, a rational fear is a really good example of if that was an iView. If if the ABC came to me and said, "Oh, we'd love a rational fear to go on iView," I would say, "Absolutely!" And let's make it embeddable and shareable, and we'll we'll churn out chunks that are purpose built for the net for a digital audience first, and share it straight through that platform. And that makes complete sense to me in that sense. And you know what? Some stuff, the stuff that you make, while it is topical. It is also some of it can can be evergreen because these are really big topics yeah. that come up yeah. over and over again. Um, yeah, yeah, no, you're right. But I mean, I, I I guess I just wonder because you know network news is like a loss leader for television networks. It always has been. It's it's very similar to you know supermarkets selling loaves of bread for twenty cents to get people in the door. They go with a loss leader yep. to bring people in, and it's exactly the same with news. It is a subsidized activity which is designed to bring people to the station and keep them there um, to 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 sort of put it at the center of the action. And I think what Netflix and and others have realized is you don't actually need that. You know, you you have the drama content. You know, what I can yep. see is all of the drama and, you know, comedy and all of that sort of stuff gravitating towards platforms like Netflix and the news gravitating towards the internet, as you said, you know, through through various channels. But I wonder that that I wonder if that's going to leave eventually, you know, in a decade from now, a bit of a gap in some of that high quality news that has traditionally been on television. It's hard to know. Um, what was the last bit of high quality news that you saw on television, Pat? Oh, look, I mean, you know, 60 Minutes does the occasional useful thing. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? You've got even yeah. some of the dodgy current affairs shows do the occasional useful thing. And Network News, they break they break stories, dude. Yeah, 60 Minutes, Four Corners, 7.30, you know, uh, Sunday night, those big marquee shows. Well, you notice that I just named commercial shows then because that's really what we're talking about. Thank God for the ABC True. because we're always going to have that. Well, hopefully, unless well, Lord Chancellor, you- Grand <laughs> Chancellor Abbott has his way. Abbott government's still in power, mate. We might not have that by the end of 2018. <laughs> um, now, the thing is, yeah, I, that's a really good question um, about that. I think Vice is probably the best model to kind of look at for for that kind of stuff. Mm. Um, while Vice does, Vice is actually, you know, contrary to how it's how it, how people uh, perceive it. I think it is actually quite good quite good content and quite oh, smart it. journalism. Their Middle East I think stuff it just, was amazing. I, it's incredible and the access they have is incredible. They don't pay for people very much um, but the the access they have and the stories they tell are, are really gripping and interesting and they really do um, – they do they have been doing great journalism of late and I think that's a really interesting angle, um, uh, a really interesting way of doing it. Like all people who have had their industries – disrupted by the internet it's about finding ways to scale 
your work to the bare bones to tell the stories you need to tell on the tools that you have. Um, and that's that's going to be the challenge. So it'll be about finding someone who's going to be the next Ariana Huffington of long-form video journalism to oh take dear. advantage of people that's a hell of a, content. That's a hell of a thing to wrap your head around there, man. Just some- I know, but just, I mean, get, uh, get ready for it. Someone's going to do it. Someone's going to go, oh, there's 10 young journalists from J School we can um, we can lean on to create our, our next bit, bits of marquee content for our platform um, and we'll go win a Walkley with those. And... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and and people will think that our brand is incredible and we haven't paid these people much at all. That's what's going to happen. And that's what probably needs to happen to start building up a brand like that. Mm. Um, so I, I think w- you're not going to have really established journalists playing in that world unless um, it has a, a big backing. So uh, much the same way how Dan Rather went to HDNet to anchor HDNet's a 24-hour HD news coverage, um, you, you you might get to a point where Carl Stefanovic might get paid by Stan to to host a serious news current affairs show and then everyone else around him gets paid nothing. So there there's... There could be something. There could be something in that model. I, I think. It, well, you know, Katie Katie Couric went went to Yahoo. Yeah, I've, no, I've never ever watched a single ounce of that Yahoo video. I reckon it was a <laughs> yeah. poor investment. Oh, dude, it's um, funny you mention that because I think in 2004 I went on a Yahoo junket to San Francisco and they took us to their campus and showed us around. They had the TV studios ready to go back then and they'd spent a boatload of money on them. And I'm just thinking. This seems an odd play. I got to be frank, you know. And they're like, "No, really- no, this is the future." And sure enough, ten years later, you get Katie Couric on there, and then it flops. And you're like, "Well, even a dickhead journalist from Australia told you this was a shit idea back in 04. It really—it's really interesting. Um, I've been in at Fairfax this last month trying to um, boost their video. We're kind of working on a, a, a new, new different forms of videos, running lots of experiments with them, which has been great. And with those experiments, we've been finding ourselves moving further and further away from the studio and really reaching for authenticity and trying to get to the heart of the story with a journalist when we're, when we're doing video with them. Um, so that means pulling them out of a studio, lighting them sparsely, no set, kind of not, not making them look important, making them look um, like an authority on the story but not, not in a traditional TV sense. Because yeah. I think what, peop- what people are looking for are, is authenticity, uh, are looking for people they can trust. And if you have a person who's eyeballing you down the barrel of a camera um, and trying to like dictate to you the story, that's a bit of a strange thing. Whereas if you just kind of put them off the side and you kind of tell, let them tell the story in their own words off script, it makes a lot more sense and, and people trust the story a lot more. So there you go. If you um, need to confect some authenticity, you can uh, you can get in contact with Dan Illick. And i got to say, I actually uh, had a bit of an inside track on your work at Fairfax because you once butt-dialed me when you were training a Fairfax guy the other week. And I had a little listen. You no were talking about way. fonts. And it was, it was quite interesting, actually. You're like, yeah, I'm not too sure about that. There was something about the font and, you know. I was like, yeah, right, interesting. But, Dan, that's that's all we're going to have time for this week, mate. It's been a pleasure, uh, as always, to chat to you about, you know, some of the issues affecting our world. And, uh, mate, we'll do it again soon. (laughs) I look forward to butt-dialing you again. (laughs) 